Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, and if you want to hear all of my patron-only materials, including the Myths of the Month, please become a patron at any level. The link is in the description. So today I'm going to talk about colonial Latin America, basically picking up from where I left off previously with the end of the conquest era in about the mid-1500s, and going through till the beginnings of the Bourbon reforms in the mid-1700s. So more or less a 200-year span, which encompasses what some historians call the mature period, the age when a new sort of civilization coalesced in Latin America. So it's a big expanse of time and a huge swath of history to cover, And I'm going to talk specifically, actually, about Spanish America. I will not get into Brazil. That's a whole complex topic unto itself, which maybe I can do at another time. But little disclaimer, the title of this one is a bit of a misnomer. I'm going to focus on the Spanish Empire in America and how it evolved. So I spoke previously about the Spanish conquests and the sort of bands of loosely organized, semi-formalized, really bandits and raiders who were able to invade the American continent and conquer the large imperial centers at Mexico and Peru in the early 1500s, and about how power was parceled out through the encomienda system, where the crown granted to certain conquistadores and their allies and supporters the right to demand labor levies from the local people in certain zones of territory. And if you listen to my previous myth of the month about feudalism, this sounds familiar. This was a common sort of practice basically modeled on medieval Europe, where local potentates could claim and have recognized their right to demand labor service or labor rents from the people residing in a certain zone. And in Europe, that was called a fiefdom. In Spanish America, it was called encomienda. And this system basically laid the first groundwork for Spanish domination and the creation of a Spanish empire in America beyond just those core imperial centers in Mexico and the Andes, although those continued to be the main centers of power and population in the empire. But this system was very controversial because of its brutality, because of the horrific impact it had upon the population of the Americas, and also because of lingering questions about the very legitimacy of Spain claiming any right over the Americas in the first place. And so it was gradually reformed and phased out, particularly with the new laws enacted by the Spanish crown in 1542, which put a sunset on all encomiendas by stipulating that they could not be passed down to the heirs of the current 
holders of these rights or encomenderos. And so hence, these powers would expire once the current encomenderos died. And so gradually, over the mid and late 1500s, there was a transition away from the encomienda-based economy towards more of a wage labor economy, where the indigenous people did have a greater degree of freedom. They were not subject to these forced labor demands, but there was still a great deal of coercion to, you could say, herd indigenous people and then also slaves and captives from Africa into the sites where the Spanish colonizers wanted labor. And with this gradual transition, there was the formation and growth of new commercial towns and cities populated largely by poor wage laborers of various backgrounds, mainly indigenous, but also African, European, and others. And the really enormous, important new city that grew up around the mining industry was at Potosi, right at that site in the Andes, in what's now Bolivia, that had the largest gold and silver deposits that have ever been found in the world, and that became a sort of mining industry metropolis and a multilingual, multi-ethnic melting pot, really. And there were other towns like that around the empire as well that also were very diverse, dynamic, commercial. Similar developments also happened then in northern Mexico following the discovery of another large silver deposit, probably the second biggest that's ever been found in the world after Potosí, and which was found in Zacatecas, in a sort of arid area of northern Mexico in 1548. And the discovery of the silver at Zacatecas also then put a great new value on northern Mexico for the empire. And there was an expansion of new missions and military outposts northward into those sort of arid and mountainous areas in what's now northern Mexico and the southwestern United States. And it led to the creation of a new colony, the northernmost Spanish colony of New Mexico, started in 1598. So by the end of the 1500s, you have a really big expansive empire, an empire of rural villages, of towns, of cities, of ports, mines, extremely dynamic, increasingly prosperous, and there was a gradual transition as more and more people were born into and lived their lives in this kind of new hybridizing society in the Spanish Indies, as they called it. There was a transition gradually to permanent clergy centered in parishes and dioceses. This is sometimes called secularization, and that does not mean what we mean today by that word of sort of moving away from religion. Instead, it was a technical word which meant taking property and offices and powers of the church away from the regular orders that had really been the first shock troops of bringing Catholicism into America, these orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans, and instead moving that over to so-called secular clergy or clergy of the world. So regular parish priests fixed in a certain town and archbishops and bishops with dioceses in cities. And more and more, a church was set up based on territory, on the parceling out of territory, 
really mimicking this what you would have seen in Europe. Instead of this, you might see what you might see as a kind of conquest church of missionary orders going out among the indigenous people. There were still, of course, many monasteries and convents, and those remained and they continued to multiply, and the religious orders did continue to be important. But instead of missionism, instead of extending and building up the church, instead these monasteries and convents focused more on education and on the creation of a a sort of well-educated Catholic elite class for this new society in the Americas. And not surprisingly, also along with these convents and monasteries, universities were started. That institution with its roots in the High Middle Ages was fairly early on transferred over to the American Empire. The first university in the New World was created at Santo Domingo in 1538, and then new ones in Lima and Mexico City, the two big regional capitals of the empire in North and South America, were both created in 1551. So now it was possible, particularly for clergy, to get a full education in theology and the liberal arts and the classics. Also, like in Europe, people could go and study and become lawyers or government officials. And the more basic education then was also set up by Jesuits. So not only could Spanish colonizers who had had a sort of basic grammar school education come over to America and get a local university education in Santo Domingo or Lima or Mexico City. But also you could get that basic education if you were born and raised in the Americas, you could get it locally from a Jesuit school. And there came to be a very close relationship, a close alliance between the Jesuit order and the new American-born imperial elite and middle class. Governmentally, instead of power being held simply by these local encomendero potentates. Stronger, more organized central governments were set up on the model of what you would have seen in Spain. And vice royalties were organized. And viceroy, you know, just means vice king, a sort of, you could see as a sort of assistant king who could be deployed to govern a large territory in the Indies. And the first title of Viceroy was actually given to Columbus himself. And his descendants and heirs really fought for a long time in court to hold on to that title of Viceroy of the Indies. But ultimately, it was divided and parceled out to several local rulers. And the biggest and arguably most important viceroyalty was the viceroyalty of New Spain, which was centered in Mexico City, in that ancient capital in the Central Valley of Mexico, but included all of Mexico, all of Central America, and the Caribbean islands colonized by Spain. So it was a really expansive domain with a lot of wealth and power. The next viceroyalty then was Peru, centered at the new colonial capital of Lima. And interestingly, this viceroyalty in particular, both really both of them, but especially the viceroyalty of Peru, could be seen by many of the people in Americas as co- a continuation of the imperial rule that had already existed before the Spanish conquest. They didn't necessarily see this as a radical rupture and imposition of foreign alien domination. 
Rather, they could see these viceroys as kind of successors of the old Aztec and Incan emperors. And you can see examples of that like in visual chronicles created in Peru with portraits of the different Incan emperors. And the succession in many of them just continues right through, through Atahualpa to Pizarro, the conquistador, and then the Spanish viceroys after Pizarro. And in this way, these regional Spanish rulers could borrow some of the prestige and the legitimacy of these older empires, even as this society changed in dramatic ways, like the introduction of Catholicism and the Spanish language and so on. These viceroyalties then could also be subdivided into smaller provinces and zones with local and regional governors, which could also be a very uh, prestigious and powerful office. And then these local governors often also had to report to regional councils called cabildos, which just means gathering. And these cabildos could be staffed by local lawyers or petty government officials or sometimes churchmen. And most often they were appointed in some way by the crown, maybe by the viceroy or a governor, but some were also elected. And they were understood to be in some way representative. They were supposed to represent the interests of the local landed gentry and to have some degree of veto power over policies. So in this way, it was a pretty decentralized empire and one with some kind of quasi-democratic elements. Over the years, as the 16th and 17th centuries went on, there was, of course, great intermixing of what had been separate populations, the different indigenous groups, Europeans, and Africans. And in the Spanish Empire, unlike in, say, the English or Dutch empires, in the Spanish Empire, this was actively encouraged, particularly by the church. The Roman Catholic Church wanted to see a better unified population, not necessarily an equal society, but one that was more cohesive. And so intermarriage between peoples of different backgrounds was encouraged. And there was a very rapid growth of a mestizo population. And that was particularly true also because more European men came over to the Indies than women did. And so it was very common for Europeans living in the Americas to have relationships with indigenous women and very often to marry them and have legitimate children and heirs and offspring with them. And so this created what was called a mestizo or mixed population. This was very common, especially in the towns and cities, whereas the country villages would more often be just indigenous. And fairly soon, the empire began to develop what was called a casta system with different racial caste groups or castas. And this could involve very complex and finely graded categories formed from different admixtures of European, Indian, and African ancestry. For instance, a person could be called a castizo if he or she was three-quarters European and one-quarter indigenous, a cholo if they were three-quarters indigenous and one-quarter 
European, a mulatto if they were half European and half African, a pardo if they were a mixture of all three, European, African, and Indian. And then there were even further finer subdivisions if you were one-eighth indigenous or one-eighth European and so on. Now, it's unclear exactly how much people knew or cared about this casta system in the early years, in the 15 and 1600s. They probably weren't walking around thinking, I have to call this person by this title because they're a cholo, but that person is a mestizo. But there was an awareness that there were these different gradations, and they served as a, you could say, a kind of compromise of sorts. The Spanish Empire never formed the kind of strict color hierarchy or segregation in social status that you might see in English colonies, but it was something people were aware of, and it was a factor in your status, in your legal rights, in, your, in whom you could marry, in what profession you could practice, where you fell in this kind of complicated color hierarchy. And Although, as I said, although there was great intermixture, this did not therefore lead to equality. There was also a lot of change and ambiguity. Where do you sort people out in these different status strata? Uh, And how do you know if one person is higher in rank than another? What if one person is, say, darker skinned, but has more money and owns more land? Where do they fall in the status hierarchy? And you can see examples of this, for instance, in the convents. So most of these Roman Catholic orders of nuns, they didn't practice strict equality among their members. Different nuns might wear different habits and live in different rooms and apartments depending on how much money their family was able to donate to the convent and what kind of class standing they had when they came in. And some of them even had different color veils, black veil nuns and white veil nuns, depending on whether they were in a higher or lower status group. And initially, it seems a lot of these convents took in high status indigenous women, women who came from the higher castes of Mexican or Andean society, and assigned them to the higher ranks in the convent. There was a kind of open recognition that different indigenous people had different caste statuses, and that should be reflected in the church. But this changed over time, and it became more common instead to relegate all indigenous women to the white veil lower status group. So these rules and norms changed over time. There was ambiguity. There was fluidity. And what you tend to see is that as the years go on and you get into the 16 and 1700s, color starts to matter more. And there's something closer to what we would think of today as archetypal racism, right? Assigning people to different status categories based on their physical color. But it was not clearly working that way early on, not at all. This It changed. And The 1700s are also the time when some people started to work out in a more systematic way how do you classify people and what do these different terms mean? What exactly is a cholo? What exactly is a coyote? And some artists in Mexico began to produce so-called casta paintings where almost like a 
biological taxonomist uh, drawing different species, they painted scenes of people of different castes showing how when you match, say, uh, a European man with a mulatta woman, you get something else. And all of these terms should have some precise meaning that you can relate to specific physical features and qualities. You know, it was, you might see uh, as like a systematic effort to create a racial system. But those were not produced again until the 1700s. Right? It, took, it came after a long time of ambiguity and change. So basically, by no later than 1600, you can see what historians would call a mature colonial Latin American civilization. And this more mature society had a more diversified economy. And that had really wide-ranging implications and ramifications. So early in the conquest era, in the early 1500s, it was a fairly simple endeavor, basically aimed at raiding and extracting resources from the Americas for the benefit of Spain. Most of the production, like farming and animal shepherding, was aimed at producing necessities for local consumption. So you had indigenous villages and you had encomienda estates where indigenous people were put to work, producing food, clothing, other basic necessities in order to then support the mining industry first and foremost, the mining of gold and silver for export. And gold and silver were pretty much the only commodities that one could find in the Americas that were valuable enough in proportion to their size and weight for it to be worth it to acquire them and ship them all the way back across the Atlantic to Europe. So gold and silver were really the be-all and end-all, the raison d'etre of the whole imperial economy. And in return for gold and silver, luxury goods, manufactured goods, were brought back from Europe. They were not produced locally. But this changed over the course of the 15 and 1600s. And more modes of production were set up for both local consumption and for export. For example, there was a fairly early development of a glass industry in northern South America in the sort of uh, Caribbean coast of what's now Venezuela, Colombia. Glass houses were set up largely to produce glass beads and other sort of simple glass objects that could be used to trade with the indigenous people for other goods, including, of course, gold and silver. And in the later 1500s and the 1600s, navigation on the Atlantic began to change. Voyages across the Atlantic became more and more frequent. Uh, Navigation techniques and geographic knowledge improved, and it became relatively safer and less expensive to move goods and people back and forth across the ocean. Some of that was with the help of Northern European mariners and merchants of other nations like the Dutch and the English and the French. And so increasingly, other goods other than just precious metals might be worth producing now with the hope of exporting them across the sea for profit. And 
Firstly, of course, plantations were set up around the Caribbean, growing cash crops like sugar, coffee, cocoa, and indigo. And each of those different crops grew best in slightly different environments and geographic zones. So you got a kind of flourishing of different cash crop industries in different places, fueled by first indigenous labor and then also imported African captives uh, put to work on these plantations. There also was a growth of cattle ranches, especially in northern South America, in the highlands of what's now Venezuela and Colombia, as well as some in Mexico and down in Argentina in the southern part of South America. And a lot of this did go to local consumption and the availability of goods, the standard of living in the Spanish colonies increased tremendously. And also certain things like hides and leather were exported to Europe for profit. And with all of this growth of local markets in the colonies for locally grown goods, the possibility of exporting leather and hides and wool and the possibility of exporting cash crops like cocoa and coffee, all of this was channeled into the development of so-called haciendas, which are this sort of distinctive inland form of large farm that was very common in Mexico and then to some degree also in northern South America that you can see is in a way sort of in between the slave plantation at one end and the traditional European manor at the other end. A hacienda was sort of like a plantation, but they weren't mostly staffed by slaves. Some were to one degree or another, but often just employed impoverished, low-wage indigenous people in a kind of makeshift village attached to a manor house inhabited by the plantation owner called the Hacendero. So haciendas sprung up all around the inland and upland areas, and port towns sprung up along the coasts. Obviously, particularly around the Caribbean, there were already port towns like uh, Santo Domingo, others like Havana and San Juan grew tremendously, Cartagena on the Caribbean coast of the mainland of South America. And there was a growth of the African population and Afro-American population all around the Caribbean basin. So not just on the islands, but also on the Caribbean and Gulf coasts of Mexico, on the northern coast of South America. This became a significant sort of known presence in Spanish America. And sometimes for this reason, people of African descent in the colonies were called costeños, just people of the coast could be a kind of byword for Afro-Americans. And there also was a, a growth of new port towns on the Pacific coast, So Lima, of course, was the big new capital, the colonial capital of Peru. But there were others down in what's now Chile and along the Pacific coast of Mexico. And these towns flourished partly through trade to Asia. So if you think back to the Treaty of Tordesillas, where the Pope basically divided the globe into two halves and parceled it out and said one half belongs to Spain, or Spain has the right to colonize, and the other half belongs to Portugal. Well, if you took that line, cutting down the Atlantic, and ran it all the way around the entire globe, it also cuts through 
East Asia and Southeast Asia. And the Spanish found that they could reach that archipelago in Southeast Asia that we now call the Philippines and was able to conquer and colonize there as well. So you get this massive trans-Pacific empire and fleets of Spanish galleons traversing the Pacific, trading directly with Asia and often exporting a lot of that silver that was mined in the Americas over to Asia and bringing back Asian goods and Asian people. So this brought a whole other additional element into the population of Spanish America, where now there were Filipino, other Southeast Asian people, Japanese, Chinese coming back with those galleon fleets and many of them settling and creating a significant East Asian community in places like Mexico and Peru. And many of their descendants, of course, are still there. And all of these developments also further spurred on new growth at the northern and southern ends of the empire, in New Mexico, in the northern fringe of South America, and down in Patagonia into those uh, grasslands that can be very good for raising cattle and other animals. There was tremendous population growth in all of those areas, and sometimes really brutal wars to claim those territories and subdue the indigenous peoples, especially down in Patagonia at the southern end of South America. And as the towns and cities and economies grew in those zones, eventually the Spanish crown split them off into two new viceroyalties. So the viceroyalty of Peru had, in theory, encompassed all of South America, that wasn't controlled by the Portuguese in Brazil. But by 1700, it was clear that uh, that was too much to administer just from Lima. And so the crown split off the northern end of South America into the Viceroyalty of New Granada and the southern part into the Viceroyalty of Rio de la Plata. So I've talked about all of these various developments, right? The secularization of the church the creation of new towns and cities and new viceroyalties, the diversification of the economy, the intermarriage or so-called mestizaje, the intermixture of different ancestral groups. And the political result or upshot of all of this, all this evolution and development, was the formation of a new local elite, a so-called creole elite. And that term Creole just comes from a Portuguese word for created. So this sort of new group that was born and shaped by the colonies. This new Creole elite was of largely European ancestry, but also many mixed, particularly a lot of mestizos as well. It was very intermarried and enmeshed in this complex society. The wealthiest of this new Creole elite class made their money from mining ventures and also other commercial ventures, shipping, building, and from haciendas, prosperous plantations. And their lifestyle often mimicked what they saw from Europe, the lifestyle of the traditional gentry on their country manners. And in some ways, you could even say the rural Creole elite in Spanish America carried on a kind of semblance of the old medieval manorial lifestyle, even when that was dying out back in Europe. 
They tended to be educated in Jesuit schools, first and foremost, or in other monasteries and sometimes the universities there in America, and sometimes also some of them, the wealthiest from the most prestigious families, might go back and get a university education in Spain. So they were highly literate. Many of them were well-read. Some were writers uh, and produced new bodies of literature. Many took up professions like law and medicine. And naturally, they wanted to get cabildo seats. They wanted a share in the power and prestige of the cabildo administrations. And many also obtained prestigious or profitable government positions like tax collecting and tax farming. So they were moving their way very effectively up into the power structure of the empire. The Caribbean colonies like Cuba and Santo Domingo and Puerto Rico, in a lot of ways, they remained the most closely connected to Spain. And the policies and the management of those colonies could be uh, set, the, the, the pace could be set by Spain more than the others, partly just because of simple proximity. They were closest geographically to be able to communicate and travel to Spain most easily. But also, partly they were more connected to Spain because so much of the indigenous population and that base of society had been totally wiped out. And entirely new societies were set up on those islands by newcomers from Europe and Africa, whereas comparatively speaking on the mainland, especially in Mexico and the Andes, you still had a very strong, numerous indigenous population. You still had indigenous languages being spoken, indigenous customs being practiced. And the society that was created there was really a blend of different influences and heritages, but with a much stronger and apparent indigenous element. So there was a bit of a variation there between the islands and the mainland and also between different areas of the mainland, right? Say Argentina down in the southern end of South America, you had much more European people, much more Spanish being spoken, as opposed to, say, the mountains of Peru, where society might look in a lot of ways much more similar to what it had been before the Spanish conquest. Nonetheless, as this sort of blending, this mestizaje and this creation of a new kind of Creole society, and you could say a Creole high culture, developed in the 1600s, many of these Creoles had a strong and increasing feeling of attachment and patriotism towards their local areas, not just towards Spain, although they recognized the sovereignty of the Spanish crown in America and took some pride in their attachment to Spain. Nonetheless, there was a great expression of pride in their actual native countries, which really were Mexico or New Granada or Peru or Rio de la Plata or whatever. And there was also some degree of popular trickle-down of this sense, this idea that people were living in a kind of new society created by the fusion of Indian and Spanish, or even African in some cases. There was a very open religious syncretism, a fusing together of indigenous customs like offerings of crops or pilgrimages to holy sites that then were carried over into Catholicism as it was practiced 
in America. And really, Spanish-American Catholicism, you can see as kind of the great archetypal example of what scholars consider creolization and syncretism. There was a veneration of local religious symbols. So Catholic religious figures or objects or saints that were specific to America or to specific places in America. And the greatest example of this that really stands out, you could say in all of world history, really is the Virgin of Guadalupe. So the veneration of the Virgin or Our Lady of Guadalupe is enormously important in Mexico and in all of Spanish America, it really plays a role. And it started from a series of visions of St. Mary, who appeared to certain people in a village in the Central Valley of Mexico, near Mexico City, in 1531. So pretty soon after Cortez's conquest of Tenochtitlan. And reportedly, the, the man who was the main witness of these apparitions, these appearances of St. Mary, said that she spoke to him in Nahuatl. So in the ancient indigenous language of the Aztec Empire. And this appearance of St. Mary was miraculously recorded on a cloth, which is still preserved in a shrine in Mexico City. And this shrine became and remains a major pilgrimage site that people from all over Mexico and even all over the world go to to venerate and pray to St. Mary. And it is today the third busiest religious pilgrimage site in the world. And the image that you see on that cloth of the Virgin of Guadalupe was adopted into local and regional symbols, for example, into the coat of arms of Mexico. And this veneration and this use of the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe had the effect of integrating America into Christian sacred history. It was the first avenue that people got to bring an American place, an American phenomenon, an American language into sacred iconography of the Christian religion. It was a Christian sacred symbol that is completely American, that is not just an importation or a mimicry uh, of a miracle in Europe. Right? It showed that America was part of the divine scheme and that God and Christ and the saints paid attention to America and spoke to Americans in their own language, the same as they did to Europeans. So in this way, you can see the Virgin of Guadalupe as kind of a, a fusion and a summation of this new society and the new loyalties and in today's language, we would say the new identities that people formed in Spanish America. So all through this era that I've been talking about, the late 1500s and the 1600s, the Habsburg dynasty was in power in Spain. So this dynasty that was originally Central European and that had managed to marry its way into the Spanish ruling house, they were the long-running dynasty that gained a certain degree of wealth and particularly prestige from their rulership and their claim over this enormous, expansive domain in America. 
And the Habsburgs were able to rule and manage this empire mainly indirectly through partnerships with the local Creole elites, especially through these mid-level institutions like the Cabildos. But it was clear by the late 1600s that there were big problems with this system and that the relationship between Spain and the Spanish crown on the one hand and the American empire on the other was unsustainable and things were going to have to change. And the basic reason was because Spain was getting little to no benefit from its claims over these colonies. And that can seem very strange. Shouldn't this have massively benefited Spanish power that they had this tremendous, mind-bogglingly expansive empire that was increasingly prosperous in the 1600s? But at the same time that these colonies were growing and prospering and developing in all kinds of ways, Spain was becoming more impoverished. So why was that? Well, reason number one is, as I've already mentioned, navigating and bringing people, information, and goods across the Atlantic Ocean was still fairly expensive and dangerous. And so you couldn't simply take for granted that managing an empire like this and defending it and trying to govern it from afar would benefit you more than it cost. And the productive industries that were able to generate wealth in the Americas required enormous amounts of labor and organization, right? Setting up a massive silver mine that extracts silver ore from deep under the earth is not something some, you know, ragtag adventurer can do on his own. It was a tremendous undertaking, and it required a great deal of work and skill run by local elites, by the people on the ground in the colonies who knew how to manage these sorts of empires, and who, as I said, were overwhelmingly Creoles, who were very attached to their home countries and were more and more, you could say, just sort of sentimentally attached to Spain. And the profits produced by these mining enterprises and the tax revenues generated by them increasingly stayed in America. They flowed into the hands of these local Creole elites with very little of the benefit making its way back to Spain. And if Spain simply tried to raise the taxes or enforce them more aggressively, they risked possibly squelching these industries and simply having them fail or shut down. Or, alternatively, they risked pressuring these local Creole elites into more and more evasion, use of loopholes, smuggling, and hence it could simply backfire and lead to even more revenue being lost. So by the late 1600s, Spain was spending enormous sums of money to protect and maintain these colonies and try to prevent other powers like Portugal or England or the Netherlands from trying to seize them. And the main reward that they were getting back from the colonies was the so-called Royal Quinto, or one-fifth. There was a formal rule that one-fifth of all the silver and gold mined from the earth in the Indies would be requisitioned by the crown and sent back to Spain. And as I said, this gold and silver was crucial because it was the only thing 
really valuable enough to be worth going through all the trouble and risk of transporting across the ocean back to Spain. But even out of this royal quinto, a great deal was smuggled or was stolen by pirates preying upon the fleet. So each year, fleets would gather in the major ports like Cartagena and collect this gold and silver owed to the crown and sort of convoy with armed ships to protect them, convoy back in a massive fleet back to Spain. But even as well-guarded as these fleets were, they still could fall prey to pirates, especially Northern European pirates, and they sometimes could be hit and destroyed by storms like hurricanes. And hence, even still today, people are still finding massive shipwrecks of Spanish galleons loaded with silver and gold. And by the 1600s, also, there had now been many decades of these treasure fleets coming to Spain and unloading large amounts of this gold and silver, which did, you know, certainly bolster the treasuries of the Spanish crown and enable them to hire mercenaries and so forth. But it also, the benefit, there were diminishing returns. The benefit gradually diminished because they were loading the European market with more and more silver. And this caused currency inflation and the actual purchasing power of this silver diminished over time as more and more of it saturated Europe and Asia. A lot of it was going back ultimately to Asia as well. And so by the end of the 1600s, even the silver that they got through the treasure fleet couldn't actually benefit them and didn't really give them that much purchasing power. So there was an increasing anxiety and struggle to find ways to somehow profit and benefit from the empire. The crown, for one thing, knew that there was now an overabundance of good, well-trained members of the elite in America. There were plenty of people with good training and on-the-ground experience who really wanted those government offices like cabildo seats, governorships, and even the sort of grand prize of the title of viceroy. So naturally, they followed market incentives and the crown began to sell seats on these cabildos. And then after that, they started to sell governorships for a large fee. And by the 1700s, they even began to sell the office of viceroy. And the upshot of this, it did generate some revenue that the crown needed and wanted from the colonies. But part of the upshot also was diminishing public trust and prestige of the Spanish crown. If you see that you just have to be rich enough to buy one of these offices, then the prestige and the respect in the public eye for these offices diminished. And a lot of the mid-level administrators and representatives, these people like tax collectors and inspectors, a lot of them became more and more corrupt. And naturally, they were looking to recoup the costs of the fees that they had paid to get the offices in the first place. So arguably, corruption only became worse, and more and more these elites were trying to sort of quietly channel the revenue and the profits of the empire into their own hands. Also, we should point out that by the end of the 1600s, the Habsburg kings themselves and their royal courts back in Spain were also increasingly corrupt and incompetent. 
there were now generations of people who had gotten used to just sitting and waiting for these massive waves of wealth to come off the ships into Spain. And many of them simply had no motivation. They just wanted sinecures where they could collect benefits. And as for the kings themselves, they became notoriously inbred. The Habsburg dynasty was one of the most severely inbred ruling houses in Europe. And some of the last rulers were reportedly just imbeciles. So things were getting to a point of extreme strain by the late 1600s. And finally, there was a turning point when the last Habsburg king died in 1700. And he had no children. And this led immediately to a succession dispute. Who would be the heir? And certain courtiers at the royal court had persuaded the king, this last Habsburg ruler, to nominate as his heir a relative, a young relative, who also happened to be a grandson of King Louis XIV of France. So he was a member of the House of Bourbon. And this raised the question, if this happened, if this young heir, uh, Philip, took up the Spanish throne, would he potentially also inherit the French throne, occupied by his grandfather, Louis XIV? And if that happened, would the French and Spanish crowns fuse into one, and would France and Spain even fuse together into a single kingdom, which happens to be exactly what England and Scotland were about to do a few years later. But nonetheless, this idea, this possibility of England and France, excuse me, sorry, of Spain and France merging together into one superpower with a massive global empire, this aroused all kinds of opposition all over Europe and also within Spain too, autonomous regions who didn't want to fall under French domination, like Catalonia and Valencia, also revolted. And there was a long civil and international war that went on for 14 years. And this Bourbon heir, Philip, took up the throne in Madrid and exercised power through those bodies that recognized him as the new ruler. And after a long struggle, he persuaded his enemies within and without Spain, to recognize his rule and his claim to the throne with the stipulation that he would not also inherit the French throne. So this sort of guardrail had to be put in, saying that France and Spain will not merge into one power. But nonetheless, a new dynasty, a Bourbon dynasty, came in to power in Spain. And they brought with them many French advisors and officials, led particularly by Jean de Horry from France. And this sort of new cadre around the royal court quickly started to implement reforms to centralize power around the crown and manage resources centrally. And part of this, it seems, was just a matter of necessity, that they had to requisition power and authority in order to manage this war effort and win this civil war. But they also were bringing in new ideas and new practices, borrowing a lot from France and Britain and the Netherlands. And a lot of the reforms were carried out by new officials called intendants, who first started to be appointed in 1711 during the war to sort of seize control and reorganize government in various zones of the kingdom. And the reforms led to a stronger treasury, a stronger military, a more disciplined military. 
And eventually, after the war, these same officials or these same circles of officials started to prepare to apply similar reforms to the overseas empire, particularly the colonies in the Indies. And it was very slow and gradual. A lot of it was sort of voluntary reforms, the recruitment of new militias with a new officer corps, with more modern training, sort of incremental, inoffensive things like this, until the outbreak of the Seven Years' War in the 1750s and 60s. And the Seven Years' War played a similar kind of role to the War of the Spanish Succession that first broke out when the Bourbons first came to power in Spain. So with the Seven Years' War, these ideas of aggressively reforming the Indies along the same lines as had already happened in Spain went into motion. And the first intendant was dispatched to America in 1764 to take up control of the island of Cuba, which, as I said, was already very closely connected to Spain, socially, geographically, and also was a really crucial military strategic point because it was this point of contact between Spain and the Americas and it was a target by the British. And the following year in 1765, a, an Irish mercenary in the service of the crown named Alexander O'Reilly was sent to Puerto Rico to completely reorganize and retrain a new militia and build new fortifications and sort of first start extending this program of reform beyond Cuba into the other colonies. So these Bourbon reforms and the efforts of these Spanish officials under the Bourbon dynasty to reorganize, re-centralize power, and increasingly cut out the local elites, these Creole elites that had been running and running society and had been on top of society for centuries now. This touched off very complicated political struggles that would eventually lead to the breakdown of the Spanish Empire and independence. But I won't get into that now. That's a whole complex story unto itself. But instead, I'll stop and talk about the art and intellectual life and the flowering of what you might call high culture in this mature, creolized and syncretic society of the Spanish Indies. So as I said, there was a fusion of European, indigenous American and Asian and African people in the population, literally. And there also was a fusion of ideas and customs and practices and an effort to, in many ways, translate across what had been linguistic barriers, social barriers. And in some ways, you can see this beginning with the compilation of books like, for example, The General History of the Things of New Spain, which was compiled by a Spanish missionary named Sahagún and others, including indigenous advisors and collaborators, in Mexico in the 1570s. And this book, General History of the Things of New Spain, is also sometimes called the Florentine Codex because it was housed for a time in Florence. And this book made an effort to record the history, the geography, the religious practices, the medicine, medical knowledge of Mexico, both before and after the Spanish conquest. And it made an effort to catalog and explain important indigenous art forms like feather art 
And these sort of initial efforts, uh, you can see them in other codices from colonial Mexico. They made it possible to develop new art forms, creolized art forms, new forms of church architecture, painting, using blended styles and blended materials and techniques, such as, for example, feather art. And you can see examples of churches richly decorated with figures of Christian saints, but represented through colored feathers in the style of pre-conquest Aztec and Mexican art. There also was Asian influence. You can see art forms like the elaborate room divider screens that were produced and richly decorated in Peru. And there are examples in museums today showing scenes like the Siege of Belgrade, a battle between the Kingdom of Hungary and the Ottoman Turks in the 1400s. So this sort of reference to the clash of Europe and Islam is being reinterpreted and represented on this Asian art form with a sort of Europeanized and quasi-indigenous style in Peru. And these early codices that I referred to, like the Florentine Codex, were then followed by more erudite histories that sought to chronicle and capture the politics and the high culture of the indigenous civilizations, such as Garcilaso de la Vega's History of Peru, also produced in the late 1500s. And there was also artistic literature. Uh, one of the greatest Spanish Baroque playwrights of the 1600s was named Juan Ruiz de Alacron, and he had been born and raised in Mexico and educated by Jesuits in Mexico. So there was American participation and contribution into this sort of European world of literature and drama. But the last topic I want to talk about is this really complicated and distinctive figure whom you can see in some ways as representative of this kind of golden age of Baroque colonial Latin America, but who also was a unique individual unto herself. And that is the person we know as Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, who was a Huronomite nun in a convent in Mexico City. So Sor Juana was born as Juana Inez de Asbaje y Ramirez de Santillana. So she had a full sort of aristocratic Spanish name. And she grew up on a hacienda in the Central Valley of Mexico, not far from Mexico City. And she was the illegitimate daughter of a Spanish ship captain. So she had mostly, it seems, European ancestry. I don't know if we know in detail what all of her background was. But her status was very ambiguous, and her standing in high society was limited by the fact that she was an illegitimate child. Nonetheless, growing up on this hacienda, she very quickly proved to be a prodigy, a young genius. And as a child and a teenager, she studied philosophy. She learned multiple languages, including classical languages like Greek and Latin and Hebrew, as well as Nahuatl, and she studied and wrote in Nahuatl, the indigenous uh, traditional language of the Mexica Empire. And she took up teaching languages and grammar and mathematics and so on to other children around the hacienda. She sort of became a little uh, precocious schoolmaster. And as a teenager, she was, people learned of her sort of exceptional brilliance. 
And she was taken to the vice regal court, the court of the viceroy and his wife in Mexico City, where she was kind of shown off as a curiosity, right, and quizzed about her knowledge and her debating ability. And it was expected that her sort of brilliance and her intellectual charisma would give her an in into an entree, you could say, into the high society of Mexico City, where she then would marry up, right? Marry a man of high status and join high society. But she surprised her patrons and fans by refusing to marry. And instead, she decided to join the Hieronymite convent in Mexico City, where she lived a cloistered life with her books and her study and sort of busy work in the convent. But people who knew of her genius and who read her writings went to visit her. And she had, you could say, a kind of small intellectual salon there in the convent, which, despite the the cramped quarters, kind of became the main intellectual center of Mexico. One of her patrons and admirers was the Vice Wren, the wife of the Viceroy, with whom she had a very close relationship, an intimate relationship, and we don't know the exact details of exactly how intimate and in what ways, but they were very close. And she also had correspondents and admirers all around Spanish America and back in Europe. People knew of her as a great intellect. She wrote, as I said, about philosophy, history, language. She was, you could say, a kind of archetypal Baroque intellectual, a sort of master of many fields and disciplines who tried to bring these different fields of knowledge together into sort of one central theory of the world. She was also an artist. She composed music and plays. She wrote poetry, some of which is still read and translated today. A lot of her poetry is very cryptic. She wrote short riddles and epigrams and also long uh, sort of mystical poems that you can see as basically hermetic meditations on the cosmos. Some of her poetry was also very personal and emotional. It seems that it may, you can read some of it possibly as lesbian, as kind of intimate love poetry addressed to other women. But, you know, we don't know the details exactly of her relationships. She also wrote poetry very directly and explicitly decrying misogyny and the double standards applied to men and women. And one of her famous poems was called You Men from its first line where she sort of addresses men. And it begins, Foolish men, you accuse the woman for no reason without seeing that you are the occasion of the very thing that you blame. So the poem is about the hypocrisy of men who beg women for sex, pleading for pity, pleading for an acceptance of their love, overcoming the woman's resistance. And then once they have sexual intimacy, then they turn around and call the women whores. <laughs> so, so Sor Juana made it very clear, especially in her later prose writings, that she had joined the convent in order to allow for an intellectual life and sort of free intellectual pursuits in a way that she didn't believe was possible in marriage. And she saw the convent both as a place of prayer and as a place to be free of male scrutiny and judgment. So in her view, the cloistered life in the convent joined together intellectual life with monastic religion and a life of prayer. 
And you can see this represented, I think, in an interesting way in the portraits that were painted by artists who went to visit her in the convent, which portray her seated at her desk, surrounded by her books, wearing her monastic habit, and wearing an escudo, or a sort of large decorated plate uh, affixed to her collar. And her escudo shows a painted scene of the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary to tell her that she is pregnant and will give birth to the Messiah. And traditionally, in depictions of the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel is approaching Mary and interrupting her while she is reading. And she's usually shown with an open book. You know, this is historically very strange considering that St. Mary was almost surely an illiterate peasant. But I think that her choice to be shown and depicted with that Annunciation scene with Mary at her book shows, I think, her, her aspiration that intellectual life, the life of study, can be fully integrated into the religious life. But how well would this work? How far could she push these boundaries? And was it really true that she could have the intellectual freedom that she wanted while living as a cloistered nun in the Catholic Church? Well, the sort of uncertainty of this situation was really put to the test in 1691 when she wrote a critique of the theological sermons of a Portuguese Jesuit priest and theologian named Antonio Vieira. So Antonio Vieira was a sort of radical and millenarian Jesuit priest from Portugal who also spent a long time in Brazil and who was also seen as a kind of major intellectual leading light of the Americas. But Sor Juana, in her intellectual reflections, wrote a response and a rebuttal to Antonio Vieira. And probably she never intended it to be published, but her friends and admirers, including the Vice Wren, thought it was an important work and did have it printed in Mexico City. And she took issue with Vieira's notion and understanding of divine love or of uh, the passions, as he described them, where he described sort of God's love and beneficence flowing freely outward to human beings who then pass it forward to other creatures and to the world in their actions. And Sorjuana argued that love running in the other direction and reaching upward towards God reflected in prayer and reflection and study was also equally important. And in this way, the passions do not just flow outward from God to people and the world, but from people back towards God. So you could see this maybe as part of her effort to merge her intellectual life and pursuits with Christianity and Christian theology. However, some people in Mexico saw this as a step too far for a woman to be openly, publicly putting forward a rebuttal of a male theologian. So first of all, just to be engaging in, in open intellectual debate and disputation to begin with, and to be openly disagreeing with and trying to rebut the theological arguments of a, a male teacher of the church, this became controversial. And to some people, it, it had finally crossed a line. 
And so the bishop of Mexico City, who was also a friend and admirer, a patron of Sor Juana, or at least claimed to be, he wrote a rebuttal criticizing and admonishing Sor Juana. And he had his criticism published under a pen name, a false pen name of Sor Filotea, which means Sister Filotea or Sister Lover of God. So he was taking on the sort of fictional persona of another nun criticizing Sor Juana. But of course, everyone knew that really it was the bishop. It was That was an open secret. So he published this message basically saying, you know, Sor Juana, you are a genius, we admire you, but you should stick to prayer and scripture and study of scripture. You shouldn't get involved in these theological debates. So Sor Juana might have reacted to this situation in all kinds of ways, but she did not take it sitting down. She wrote and published her own reply, her respuesta a Sor Filotea, her reply to Sor Filotea. And in her reply, she argues that women have intellectual faculties that should be used and that are in some way part of a divine plan and should not be repressed. She describes herself, she writes a kind of first-person memoir of her intellectual life, and she describes having an unstoppably restless mind that is constantly looking for ways to understand and analyze what she sees. And there's a remarkable passage where she describes in her youth, when she was first becoming a a sort of voracious reader and prodigy, she describes cropping back her own hair as a way of challenging herself to keep learning more. And she says, quote, I used to cut four or five fingers width from my hair, keeping track of how far it had formerly reached and making it my rule that if by the time it grew back to that point I did not know such and such a thing which I had set out to learn as it grew, I would cut it again as a penalty for my dullness. For I did not consider it right that a head so bare of knowledge should be dressed with hair, knowledge being the more desirable ornament. So you can see her kind of disavowing or denying herself the traditional ornaments and trappings of femininity if she didn't reach the intellectual level that she believed she ought to. And she then tells similar stories of her life in the convent, noticing things like a child spinning a top and seeing how it traces out a weird, complicated spiral path of cycles and epicycles on the ground, and so scattering sand and spinning it again in order to observe and analyze the geometric pattern of its motions. And she clearly was a person who could not stop experimenting, learning, and observing, even when the convent and the abbess told her to stop and admonished her to turn away from these studies and experiments and focus on normal duties of a nun, she still could not help herself. And she describes being assigned to work in the kitchen and observing chemical changes in the kitchen, like eggs as they cook, and how this further fed her curiosity and her learning. And she says at one point, quote, if Aristotle had been a cook, he would have written a great deal more. So you can see again, she kind of can't help herself taking these little kind of sly shots at major male intellectual figures and arguing that she can rival or even surpass them. 
And so hence she argues this irrepressible intellect should be used for good and advancement and not suppressed. And she further bolsters her argument with religious points, such as the fact that there are many female heroes in the Bible, like Miriam and Deborah and Judith, who are able to guide and save their peoples from great danger, and the Queen of Sheba, who is wise enough to be able to question and sit in judgment of King Solomon, and hence in this way was, you might say, the wisest person in the Bible. And finally, she says, there may be an argument for intellectual humility, that people should know their own limits and should be careful about interpreting scripture. She accepts that interpreting scripture and making theological pronouncements may be dangerous and fraught, as the Bishop of Mexico City had said in his uh, letter under the name Sor Filotea. But she argues, quote, the interpretation of Holy Scripture should be forbidden not only to women, considered so very inept, but to men, who merely by virtue of being men consider themselves sages. So she's really, you could say, in some ways going full bore here, right, against the double standards and sexist assumptions of her society and of Roman Catholic Christianity as it was taught at that time. Ultimately, we don't know much about what she did in the few years after this exchange. Shortly after, she gave away her books, probably under great pressure, maybe voluntarily, but she gave away her books, at least made a show of stopping her intellectual pursuits, and instead she devoted herself to caring for the sick, which was a major duty of nuns. And we can suppose that it also held some intellectual appeal for her. Medicine and epidemiology were very complex fields of learning and experimentation. But regardless, she ended up contracting an infectious disease while treating fellow nuns in her convent and died in 1694. So again, Sor Juana can be seen to represent arguably the apex of this flourishing of art, of literature, of philosophy in the mature colonial civilization. And her death in 1694 can be seen to represent the closing of this time of cultural and intellectual flowering of Baroque Latin America. And this society would then be drastically disrupted, and the intellectual leaders, the civic leaders, would be consumed more and more by the political controversies and turmoils of the 1700s as the Bourbon reforms made their way from Spain to America. And that, again, is a whole other story that maybe I can get to another time. So thank you so much for listening. I expect that soon I'll be posting more patron-only materials, including the next Myth of the Month, which will be on astrology, both the basic ideas and teachings of astrology and the ways that it's been applied to historical events. So if you want to hear those patron-only materials, including Myth of the Month Astrology, please become a patron at any level. 
And I currently have 82 patrons. It's been inching its way upward. But I have a number of patrons whose payments have been declined and who need to update their information in Patreon to make sure that they get these patron-only materials that are coming. So Joseph Milburn, Sandrew, Piotr Golus, Ben Schriefter, L.S., and Ariel A. Duncan, please fix that so that you'll be able to hear these upcoming lectures right away when they come out on Patreon. So thank you so much again, and I'll talk to you again soon. Yo, I did say you were in a muffled thing you were. Boys, look at me, the folly, the left.